Right to Refuge, a podcast brought to you by Solidarity. I'm Izzy Ponsonby, Director of Outreach, and today I'm talking to Abby from Phoenix, based in Greece. Today we're going to be talking about LGBTQ plus issues and asylum claims and the work that Phoenix does to support. Hi Abby, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, can you start off by just telling me a bit about Phoenix and your role there? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, so Phoenix is a holistic legal aid organisation um, on Lesbos that provides legal aid to refugees. By holistic, it means also protection services and mental health are provided, as well as a range of legal services. Whilst I am, um, I've been in Phoenix. I was a family reunification coordinator for two years, and at the same time, I was the consultant on asylum claims based on sexual orientation and gender identity. So in previous episodes, we've spoken about gender as a reason for seeking asylum and how under the 1951 Refugee Convention, it's not a reason for well-founded persecution. Um, Obviously, claims of sexual orientation and gender identity, they have this same problem. Can you tell me a bit about the additional barriers they face on top of that? Yes, so sexual orientation is actually slightly similar to... um, gender and the fact that people seek asylum under being a particular social group. So to meet this, there is a certain threshold that is often hard to prove. And some of the difficulties proving the credibility within the the applicant's testimony. And this is much more difficult than a lot of other asylum cases, because in the country of origin, there's obviously often a lack of evidence to be able to prove someone's sexual orientation, especially if people have been hiding their orientation prior to fleeing. It's also um, difficult to prove something that's inherent in someone, um, as opposed to, for example, if someone's seeking asylum on the grounds of political opinion, they're much more likely to be involved in something like protests or be able to to prove their, their um, work towards that. But if you are just inherently gay or uh, non-binary or any... Um, any sexual orientation, gender identity minority, that doesn't always have to express itself in an outward way. So the evidence in order to support what you are telling the caseworker is often much less. And so because of this, um, there is an extra weight onto the testimony of the applicant. And then there are further barriers for the applicant to be able to articulate their claim correctly. So because of the the standard of often having to hide your orientation in your country of origin, combined with the sort of societal um, taboo and stigma around sexual orientation, that creates a lot of internal shame for some applicants. And then they're expected to articulate their claim within sort of Eurocentric labels and a Eurocentric understanding of what it is to be LGBT when they haven't necessarily had that safe space to explore their identity or explore their orientation in a way that they are able to articulate. And of course, sexual orientation identity claims don't exist within a vacuum. They exist within many other struggles. So people who are seeking asylum on sexual orientation, gender identity, are more likely to be survivors of SGBV 
and the SGV. V is often on account or related to their sexual orientation. So obviously there's many studies out there that say that um, such trauma can can hinder someone from, from being able to articulate their claim. But this trauma is also much more personal to someone. So it has an extra barrier of and an extra layer of feeling shame because of the trauma happened in their mind often because of who they are. So all of this combined can really um, create a multitude of barriers for an applicant to be able to articulate their claim without even considering the prejudice and bias from the caseworkers. Well, that's really interesting, the idea that we speak a bit about its solidarity, about kind of the process and the testimony and the trauma involved around it, but the idea that it's very personal trauma is really interesting. So you mentioned bias within the interviews. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, exactly. So even if they were, um, someone was able to articulate their claim, you've then got a further barrier from an external perspective, which is from the caseworkers and the asylum um, office. So what we find is there's, a, at least in Greece, and from IASO, the European Asylum Service, and from GAS, a Greek Asylum Service, that there is a serious lack of training or understanding about these claims. So we see um, it's often framed in terms of a lifestyle, a choice, uh, terms that shouldn't be used are often used, like homosexuality. Um, and we found when we were reviewing transcripts that these were asked in quite a um, loaded way in a way that put a lot of shame on the applicant, in addition to the shame they may already be feeling telling a stranger, potentially for the first time, of of their orientation or identity. And um, the lack of training, I think, has obviously many symptoms, and one of them is the over-reliance on stereotypes. So we see um, a lot of stereotypes being used, and these ones, again, are loaded in the fact that the person is already potentially feeling shame. They're already being very vulnerable, exposing their identity. And then they're being met with this sort of prejudice and these um, this culture of disbelief. OK, so in terms of loaded questions, obviously, you've mentioned a bit about shame. Could you just explain a bit more what type of questions these could be? Of course. So um, we've seen questions uh, repeatedly asked to different applicants actually where some traumatic events has happened or they describe something or the reason for fleeing and their response the caseworker's response is you know you're a smart person considering you know it was illegal or you knew you were in danger why did you choose this lifestyle and so that's something where you're not only dismissing the trauma they've faced but you're also putting the responsibility and weight of that trauma on them for choosing to be gay, which of course is a really ignorant statement in itself. That's really awful. Um, and obviously you mentioned earlier about terms that they're not really meant to use, like homosexual. Can you kind of explain a bit more what you mean about terms that we should try and avoid um, in this kind of discourse? Of course. So the homosexual homosexuality tends not to be used and it's... Um, by GLAD, uh, now seen as an offensive term, and now we're under the definition of offensive term. And that's because of its clinical history um, used to pathologize sexual orientation as a disorder or something that needs to be treated. So 
and since then has obviously been adopted by uh, anti-gay or prejudice groups. So homosexual should be replaced ideally with gay or um, a sexual, someone with a diverse sexual orientation, sexual orientation minority, something like this. Um, and then we, we, in an international context, prefer to use SOGESC, which stands for Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity, Expression and Sex Characteristics over LGBT. And this is because if we're looking at different cultures um, and again, internationally, when we're looking at language, this is because it's much more fluid, inclusive and it's less culturally dependent. So we see this also happen in the asylum interviews. The caseworker will, will increase how skeptical they are about the applicant if the applicant is unable to define themselves as LGBT. So we have questions that are asked things like, you're a man who's attracted to man, how do you not know what LGBT is? Or why do you not say you're LGBT? And that's because it's a very rigid category we're putting people in. And even if we look outside a international context and we are, let's say about in the context of the UK, sexuality, orientation, it's fluid. And it is something that cannot be easily, easily defined in such rigid terms. And then when you combine that and you look at it from an intersectional approach and you combine that in an asylum context where different countries have different way, ways of categorizing orientation or gender identity, um, you know, not every country has got two genders that we see as the norm. Um, and so when you look at it like that, it makes more sense to, to refer to people as having diverse sexual orientation, gender identity, expression or sex characteristics in order to be inclusive and to bear in mind where people are coming from and to try and remove this sort of Eurocentric lens that we seem to apply. That's really interesting. I think the point about expecting people to fit into this kind of Eurocentric box and even just a box within this set of terminology is something people probably don't think very much about. I think I've read a bit about people seeking asylum claims based on their gender identity and kind of this fluidity and not being able to answer the questions that they're expected to in the interviews. Have you come across that much? Yeah, exactly. So we've seen a lot of this where there's, there is this expectation to be able to say, to identify yourself as um, something within these neat categories. And we've seen where, for example, a man has said, I'm attracted to men. And the follow-up question from the caseworker is, so how do you define your sexual orientation or are you gay and or are you transsexual or whatever and that person has already clearly stated their sexual orientation in the way that they perceive it there is no need for them to take that additional step to define themselves within this and i think gender identity is also one that is something that especially people seeking asylum may not have had any chance to explore properly um and we have actually seen some good practice of caseworkers with this, where an applicant coins their own sort of term to be able to describe what they were because they didn't have the tools or language in the, in the culture they're growing up to be able to articulate it. And what we found was when the caseworker uh, adopted the term that they used, that the applicant used, once the caseworker had established what that meant, um, so there wasn't any talking past each other or any misunderstanding. Once the caseworker adopted this language, it actually made it um, a much more 
easy communication and it's made the applicant feel much more comfortable in what they were talking about rather than trying to fit this person who still doesn't know how to define themselves into something that is very rigid and it's not it's not at all um, inclusive or exhaustive. It's really brilliant to hear that there are some good examples I think it's good to kind of think that there is some hope out there and like you say training is obviously a really key part of that there's we've obviously now spoken about kind of lots of the issues that go on in the asylum claim like discussions of trauma and specific wording can you tell me a bit about how phoenix helps people get through that so i think the main um importance enabled to do, in order to do this and to be able to provide the best legal services for people with asylum claims based on their sexual orientation and gender identity is does essentially come down to the training i think what is a, a really good way of going about it is to make sure that every lawyer that's providing this information and preparing a client for their interview or anything like this is informed about this not only about the law but also about the difference between gender identity and gender expression the the different ways these can manifest and looking at it from an intersectional lens and why it's important not to have expectations and to understand the approach you're taking from your life experience and realize how that doesn't necessarily map onto the experience of the applicant. Um, so we, we make sure that we have regular trainings every time new people come in. And we, we've really noticed in the last year, since making sure that we've been doing the, the trainings, the people are much more aware and much more open-minded in terms of understanding the fluidity and the importance of recognizing this. We've also produced um, a, a diagram, essentially. So rather than saying how to identify for someone who may not be able to, to identify so easily, the diagram, it essentially produces, it, it's a tool for someone to be able to say. So for example, on one side, it's got a picture of a man. On one side, it's got a picture of a woman. And then they can point along the scale where they feel most comfortable. And same with, you know, sexual orientation. And we've got the sexual expression one. So rather than expecting people to be able to share a language or tools, they've got this easy diagram where they can identify. And it's understood that they don't have to be so rigid. They don't have to categorize themselves in a box that they're not, they, you know, that's not necessarily fully going to apply to them or make them feel fully um, heard. And I think beyond that, really, what we've done is we review every transcript. So when a client has had their interview and we received the transcript, we went through all the sexual orientation, gender identity transcripts. We noticed the patterns. And this means that we can very quickly identify when prohibited questions were asked, when there was procedural violations, um, and be able to have that in mind for an appeal. So if they are rejected on grounds that does not match the European standard, we are able to appeal these decisions. That all sounds really brilliant. I love the idea of the chart and people, like we've, <clears throat> like we said, not having to label themselves, but just saying purely how they feel and without having to use any loaded terms or words or it completely crosses the language barrier as well that's I think that's such a fantastic idea I know you've been producing a report um has the transcripts played into that and can you tell me a bit about the report and your findings 
So, yep, the reports um, about so, uh, asylum claims based on sexual orientation and gender identity on Lesbos, and it's from the experience of Phoenix looking at these cases. It came about after reviewing the transcripts of um, our clients and noticing there was a pattern and a trend with the questions being asked and that these questions were either prohibited under EU law or they um, relied on stereotypes or were um, or framing questions in a loaded, loaded and um, offensive way, such as using lifestyle and choice or... Um, putting the responsibility of the trauma on the applicant. And so once we once we noticed these trends, we wrote out this report and it essentially starts with the background information. So it talks about the particularities of these cases um, and why it is difficult for people to articulate their claims. We then go on to discuss the medicalization and the ICD codes that are used before we go on to the legal side of it, which is talking about the prohibited questions um, such as asking about sexual practice or expecting someone to return to their country of origin and um, remain discreet, so to hide their identity. We move on after that to the lack of training of caseworkers and the impact that has. Um, one of the impact of that is the use of stereotypes and the reliance on stereotypes. And stereotypes, of course, then put um, an extra level of shame or, or taboo onto the onto the clients so we see questions like um can you explain how you have a child if you are gay or can you explain if you've ever been with a a person of the opposite sex if you're gay um or can you name some lgbt organizations in your country of origin things like this um and these questions should not be asked um to the extent that the decision cannot be based on stereotypes. So once we've got all of these, we then look at the impact of these kind of questions on the mental health of the applicant. And we finish off with the recommendations, um, which includes obviously a complaint mechanism to be available in order to ensure this does not happen. Um, the report's out. That's really brilliant. So the, the questions that are being put forward by the case workers, Who's training them? Where is this original set of questions coming from? The recommendations. And in this, we say we say that there needs to be an, a, a complaint mechanism for YASO because, of course, it's, um, it's all good saying, well, this wasn't the correct way to do it. But unless there is an official complaint mechanism, this is not going to be brought to the attention of the people who, who need to be making those changes. Gosh, that's really... Tricky then. Hopefully, if this has been like a proper finding from your report, hopefully it makes it easier to take some action against it and hopefully stop this practice that's going to continue making it harder. I think it is the idea that there is no complaint mechanism. So as much as you can prepare and as much as you can be aware that something's wrong, and you know that the EU standard is out there, you know by law that these questions cannot be asked, and yet they continue to be asked, and there is no way to to correct this. And I think one of the reasons is, is that this issue isn't surface level. This isn't something that can be fixed so easily as one training, and then it's okay, because a lot of the questions are very loaded. They're biased. 
they are based on prejudice and I think the the sort of much deeper systematic um homophobia or transphobia is undermining a lot of the the way that the people seek asylum on their sexual orientation or gender identity are perceived so then that leads to how the questions are asked also um and so I think there's a long way to go until until we in Europe get this right in the way we're assessing it and I also think that um, there needs to be a greater understanding of intersectionality within this. There's a lot of information on LGBT rights. There's a lot of information about um, discrimination or assaults. But when you're looking at this and um, within the asylum context, when you're looking at people seeking asylum on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity, there's a real um, vacuum of information. There's very little available there's very little research going into it compared to other areas and it is something which needs the resources to be there because until people are aware of how much of a problem it is there's not going to be the energy put in and there's not going to be um the appropriate people involved in order to be making the much larger changes that need to happen so we've obviously gone over a bit about the actual claims and the issues within that I want to talk a bit about you personally and your experience of the role. What do you find hardest in your role? Because if public opinion is pushing for this to be um, improved, there's going to be more weight in order and more of a motivation for the appropriate authorities to do something about it. I have to say there's there's a serious lack of case law, a lack of cases going to court on this case. uh, on these kind of cases and there is not enough change happening fast enough in the last few years I would say. It must be really frustrating kind of having this understanding of what kind of things need to be done but coming up against the same issues again and again and seeing these problems just continue to happen. Have you noticed any change in the past couple of years or anything like any change in attitudes or any kind of progression in the right direction? I think seeing the impact of the trainings on the legal service that we can provide to these clients, um, seeing the awareness of of the team on on this issue and the importance of not treating these claims just as any other claim, you can see the impact. um, And I think there has been multiple cases where the team that preps clients for asylum have been able to give the appropriate space and um, and tools for that person to begin to explore their identity or to start feeling comfortable in articulating it and I think that's um, something which is invaluable and something that needs to continue. Um, so just to end off the episode today for anyone listening at home what can they do to help um, with these issues and support people going through this? So I think one of the reasons that these issues are able to continue to manifest in the way that they do and to continue being so prevalent is because of the lack of understanding and awareness. So from home, I think the best thing you can do is raise awareness. Um, This can include read and share our report, understand what the situation on Lesbos is, but also in your own country, 
understand what the situation for people seeking asylum on the basis of the sexual orientation or gender identity is, understand if they're being asked these questions that are prohibited. And if they are, I would urge you to contact the relevant authority um, and to ho- try and hold people to a higher standard. But the first step is for people to to have this awareness. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, I really appreciate it.